This is Outside the Vines, a podcast that fuses three big names from the world of sports, their love of wine, and their thirst for sports. For the video version of this podcast, check out our YouTube channel. There you get to enjoy the visual side of our podcast with next-level infographics, and you get to witness the reactions from our guests and hosts while they taste the wines. All right, let's get to it. Here are your hosts for Outside the Vines, Ted Robinson, Glenn Parker, and Ashley Adamson. All right, we promised you we'd be back, and we are. We took a little August hiatus, like so much of the world, the civilized world does, uh, and we are back together for more Outside the Vines. Can't be happier to have with us, for the three of us, this extraordinary guest, uh, Dan Costa, Costa Brown. If, you, if you've clicked on, you probably know Costa Brown, Wine Spectator, Wine of the Year in 2011, made him about 50 million. So he turned around and oh, I'm sorry, Dan, I don't mean to undersell you. I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, and he turned around and with partner Michael Brown, they've sold Costa Brown. He eventually partnered with a guy named Emerald to do Alden Ali, which is the wine we will taste tonight. And our, of course, our aficionado Glenn here will, will help lead us in that tasting. Uh, we had Rich Aurelia on with Red Stitch. I have no idea how Rich learned so much about wine, but it must be his friendship with you, Dan. <laughs> and so saying all of that, thank you for being with us. And really quickly, the obvious place for me to start, you, you're partnered with Emerald on Alden Ali. What is the best meal you've ever cooked for Emerald? Well, you know, it's funny, Ted. Thanks for having me on, by the way. Um, I tried to cook for Emerald and, and it was here in Santa Rosa in Northern California and Emerald and Alden Lagasse. That's the name of the winery. Alden is uh, uh, Emerald's wife. Allie is my, my ex-wife. But um, anyway, they come and they're staying at the house and I say, let's, let me cook you guys dinner. And Emerald says, well, okay, well, I'll go to the store with you. So I'm like, oh, great. That's going to be fun. in Santa Rosa, a little, you know, sleepy town, Santa Rosa, we're going to go to Whole Foods and it's going to take two hours, right? Cause <laughs> it's just going to get bugged. Oh man. He goes with me. He would not let me touch anything. He, so, so to answer your question, I, I bought him a couple of glasses of wine once, but other than that, I, I there's no way I can cook for him. It's it's a little crazy, and I love to cook. You know, I'm sure you heard that from uh, Richie Aurelia, but no way. <laughs> it's kind of why that's how I I don't let him make wine either. I, I gotta ask. There's so many things that I'm excited to talk to you about, but just if anyone googles you on your, whether it's your website or Wikipedia, almost in every bio, there is a line that just really jumps off the page at you. Dan Costa was introduced to Burgundy Wines at the age of five. <laughs> yeah. I, I usually say five, but it was probably more like four. <laughs> great, that's great parenting. That's all I can say. I'm just thinking how I'm doing all of this. So, can you tell me how how you first started tasting Burgundy at the age of five? Yeah. So my my dad was an airline pilot. He's a retired pilot, and um, so he was he was flying back and forth to Europe, and he just got very much into that kind of culture over there, especially in France. And so um, he, you know, back, this is back, geez, what almost fifty years ago. Um, when, when those wines are actually accessible price-wise. Um, so he would get these fantastic burgundies, DRCs, Domaine, Domaine Romani Contis, you know, the, the high-end stuff. And, and that's what I cut my teeth on. But it wasn't like every night. It was probably about like this much wine on a Friday or Saturday with dinner. 
this is probably a lot. Of course, this glass is so huge. Back then, we had like those little port tasting glasses. Um, but yeah, but the, the caveat was that we had to, I had two older brothers and um, we had to tell them what we thought of the wine. So it wasn't just getting wine to drink. It was more of a, a, a cerebral exercise and a, about analysis. And of course, you know, when you're that young, you don't have a great palate or your palate's going to change, but you do learn an appreciation for the process. <laughs> I want to know what the descriptors like. What are the word descriptors that a five-year-old would use to describe a burgundy? Well, I'll tell you. Um, you know, it's you know red fruit a lot. You know, like a like a cherry or a strawberry, really basic kind of stuff. But let me, I can tell you a story about my oldest. My oldest is now fifteen, but when she was three years old, four years old, I would do the same thing. <clears throat> and I gave her a sip of back then. I had a lot of Costa Brown, obviously, so I gave her a sip of wine. Just on my finger or her finger. I let her dip her finger into my glass. And I said, well, what do you think about this? Just like my dad did with me. And she says, well, it tastes like cherries. I'm like, all right. That's fantastic. She's getting it. The next week, I open up a bottle of uh, Sauvignon Blanc, and I let her do the same thing. I said, well, what, do you, what does it taste like? And she says, it tastes like cherries. <laughs> I, said, I said, go to bed. I probably really started developing my palate closer to 18 years old around there. Yeah. And, you know, just being able to discern uh, a lot of nuance, um, especially with, with telling different um, varietals apart, you know, and I mean, that's a big start. A lot of people just, you know, it's red or white. And it's just, it is an acquired taste and it does take a long time. I, I'm sure Glenn, you know about that. Well, I, not nearly as, as you do, but one thing, it struck me as odd when you said at the age of five, you're drinking, you know, or, or somewhere thereabouts, you're drinking DRC or whatnot. It's like, my God, <laughs> you know, well, I, I'm, I'm a Pinot guy, Dan. And it's like, the reason I always talk about Pinot is because it's, it's, it's kind of like some people say it's like that first cigarette. Some people it's like that first experience in bed or whatever. You're always chasing that dragon from there on out. The one that hits you, you're always chasing it from there on out. It's like the, the next one's never good enough until you get it again. It's, 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 it's so true. It's, it's, it's such a journey. You know, I mean, it's I, I don't believe in a hundred point wines. I just don't because right. that, that kind of takes the fun out of the, the chase. You know, I don't I just don't find perfection in wine. I I, it's, I don't think that that's inherently possible, but you can get close. But Pinot Noir is I think it's all of that, that kind of that chase, that that uh, pursuit um, is obviously that's the way I manifest. So Pinot Noir is the manifestation of that because it is hard to grow, hard to make um, again, nuance. But you can have so many different styles, uh, light, earthy full-bodied, ripe, um, and it really is very transparent. It really is the best grape, I think, for, you know, describing a sense of place about where the wine is grown. Yeah, yeah. and you really can't hide um, mistakes. You can hide a mistake with a, with a mixed, you know, a, a Bordeaux lets you hide some things. A Meritage lets you hide some things. You can't hide in Pinot Noir. No. It is, it is what it is, and it's how you, the process you made it makes it what it is. No, you're, you're absolutely right. So that's why when we first started making wine in 1997, Michael Brown and I made our first wine. We, our, our first love was always to go to Pinot. Um, first of all, we just love it. 
But second of all, we, we wanted that challenge. You know, if you can make Pinot Noir well, you can just about do anything. Um, <laughs> but it, as you as you may know, Costa Brown was well known for full body Pinot Noirs. And so that was kind of a little bit of a game changer back then in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it kind of, you know, we, frankly, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have that much skill. It was almost like we did it on accident because we couldn't, you know, we, we just wanted riper flavors from the grapes themselves. We didn't know that the wine was going to be these, you know, big full bodied wines. But man, back then that was the trend, or at least we started, helped start a trend and um, big scores, this, that, the other. And, you know, with, not to compare Alden Alley with uh, Costa Brown, it's just I will say that I'm older now and I, I want more elegance in my wines. I want the same complexity, but I do want, you know, elegance. You said you can't hide in Pinot Noir. Sometimes you can hide with wine if you do have a big extracted style. I'm not saying that we were hiding with Costa Brown, but ripeness kind of tends to um, overshadow that that elegance sometimes and so now we just wanted to make a little bit more of a an intellectual wine wine that is um not formulaic at all not again not saying that our old wines were but um really respecting the vineyards and what they have to offer sometimes you know a Sunchase Vineyard, for example, it likes to be a little bit fuller bodied than the than the Campbell Ranch. It's just you just gotta. It takes so many years to figure out these vineyards, really, and so it's like steering a, a an aircraft carrier. But but the older you get, you know, I think you you I think most people do gravitate gravitate more towards the elegant style. Before we get into um, the wines, I, I want you to know. Prior to you coming on, we were talking. And I had had Costa Brown, and in previous episodes, we've I've talked about the rise of the cocktail wine in the '90s. So I got into wine in the early '90s, and all through the '90s was in my heyday. The rise of the expense account cocktail wines, very extracted, very jammy. That was the big thing. Costa Brown was in the forefront of the Pinot Noir that hit that craze. And before you came on, I was just tasting your Campbell Ranch, and I said, this is such a more elegant wine than the Costa Brown I wine. can vouch for that. I was like, this is... <laughs> and I was like, so the fact you said that, I was like, it, it's such... We'll get into it later, but wow, you just hit on everything prior to coming on we were talking about. Really in- oh. interesting. That I can't wait to awesome. get yeah. your brain it's, more it's about that. It's definitely a... A direction. And, and the other part of it, too, is it just naturally this style of wine goes really well with food. Yes. And here we are partners with the Legacies and it, and we're foodies up here in Northern California, obviously. So there's, it just all came together with the evolution of, of me being in the business for 25, 30 years. And, uh, but, but here we are. Uh, Dan, Dan, tell us how you started this, because you're first of all, you're you're growing Pinot at the start, which is not at the time big. And you're in Sonoma which was growing as well. How did you, how did this all come together for you? Well, I'm, I'm from Sonoma County, um, Santa Rosa. My dad was from Hillsburg. So wine has always been a big part, even though wine around here is relatively young, you know, in the last 40, 50 years, um, it's still had that culture. Um, and so subsequent to my dad giving us underage kids wine, um, he opened up a wine shop as well. So we had access to so much wine and it was just a a lifestyle. 
And then uh, through in junior high and high school, I, I worked my way through school working in restaurants. And I've always loved the service industry. And by the time I was 18, I was, you know, working with Gary Danko at Chateau Souverain, you know, making, you know, just being surrounded by the best food in Sonoma County. And after that, I, I started working at John Ashton Company as a waiter. This is about 1989. And I quickly just kind of worked my way up to assistant sommelier at, at John Ashton Company. And by the time I was 24, I was running the wine program. So um, we had about 800 wine selections there. Um, which was for, for back then in the mid nineties, um, I was a big, big selection. And a lot of it was French. And of course, once I put my, my spin on it, it had lots of Pinot, whether it was Burgundy or back then, you, you know, you had William Williams starting out, Rocchioli and Gary Farrell, uh, 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 Joe Swan, just Daylinger to name a few. So we were just all enthralled with Pinot Noir. And that's when I was uh, the wine director at John Ash. That's when um, I met Michael Brown. So we started working together at John Ash. And he was kind of like me. We were, you know, a lot of times people in the restaurant business are transient or they're students, um, not taking it terribly seriously. But Michael and I, we, we kind of gravitated towards each other because we did take it very seriously. And um, in 1997, you know, that restaurant is right in the middle of Russian River Valley. So we had a lot of winemakers coming in and we would just start having conversations about production, not just the finished product. And um, Michael and I just approached a friend of ours and just asked him if he could peel off a half a ton of fruit from the upcoming harvest. And he said, yeah. And so we made a half a ton of Pinot Noir, which makes about, I think we made like 24 cases. So that, that was our first, uh, our big foray in 2000 or excuse me, 97. And then we, and then we uh, developed partnerships with a couple of investors, like my parents, you know, not nothing big. It was all friends and family, angel investors. And then all of a sudden in 2003, the 2003 vintage wine spectator really took a liking to us. And um, that's when we started getting the really good exposure. And then in 2004, we had our Kanzler vineyard uh, got, 98 points in Wine Spectator, which was at the time the highest Pinot Noir other than Burgundy, the highest score given to a Pinot Noir. So all of a sudden we're in this fishbowl. No, no formal training, you know. So we got a little, Michael Brown got a little, uh, he got a little bit nervous because, you know, you can, you can, you can make mistakes in quiet and in private, but now we're not that private Ashley, Ashley this sounds so like this is a Roy Hobbs story. Does this sound like the natural? Well, I'm just laughing because you're talking about being 24 <laughs> and being, you know, in charge of the wine program. And I, I'm thinking when I'm 24, I'm drinking Boone's Farm. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's where I am and where you are right now. But I, I'm curious, you, I, I was listening to an interview with you, uh, with you from the other day and you were saying that you made a lot of bad wine in your career. So can you just like give us an example? Like what's like the worst, can you tell us one of those stories? What's the worst wine that you made or when did you? Well, let's say this, I, we started Costa Brown officially okay. in, in 99. So I said that we made our, our first wine in 2007, which was good, but it's only 24 cases. We weren't licensed or anything like that. So we just drank it. But you notice that I skipped over 1998. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> we, we made some wine in 98 that was not good. And then, and keeping in mind that we didn't have our own facility, so it was really hard to control a lot of the cleanliness issues. And then in 2000, um, we, we made a Pinot Noir that had Britannomyces, which was a spoilage yeast. 
And we just kind of took it off the mark. It was only like, um, no, 2001, excuse me, but it was only like 180 cases. But, but you know, that's, that's really bad when you're, you go to sell all your wine and Britannomyces, that spoiler juice, what happens is it, is it's, it gets really dirty, but it also starts fermenting any other nutrients in the wine. So it's fermenting in the bottle. So it gets really fizzy and it starts pushing corks. So it's like, oh, geez, that was really bad. Yeah, it was really bad. But we were luckily we caught it to where we, we didn't ship it off too many places. <laughs> All right. Pop, whoop, there it goes. All right, Glenn. The Campbell Ranch is open. Let's let's get oh. let's get to the good stuff. Yeah, I tasted that earlier. I'll All tell right. you what. Um I've, I've had both the, the Sonoma Coast and the Campbell Ranch. I love them. And you're going to have to excuse me, Dan. I, I'm at my lake house, so I only have a, I don't have quite the glass I would like to use uh, to fully open this thing up. But wow. Um, I love the Campbell. I, I like them both. Uh, as I said, very elegant compared to, to the Costa Brown's wine, wines. What blew me away was the alcohol content and how I was expecting a hot wine. And they were not hot at all. They were so... Well done and rounded that um, when you're talking about a, a Pinot that's over 14%, you normally go, okay, that's going to be a, a big extracted fruit bomb. I didn't feel that at all. I felt more that this was a, an elegant food wine that I was drinking. Something that, and, and I love that you said cherries. You know, yeah, it's the cherry. All that red fruit's there. But there's, there's an underlying um, kind of like what you would get if you not the smell or not the taste, but what you would get when you bite into a, a dried tart cherry, that, yes. that hit yeah. of that thing, that oily tart, really resinous thing that's there. So it's not an extracted fruit bomb. It's not a cocktail wine. I was so shocked by the fact that I thought a 14.2 alcohol, I'm like, oh, we're, we're tending towards hot here. And it wasn't hot at all. It was really elegant. And that's what I talked about before we went on there. I was like, this is a really nice wine for what I thought it was going to be. And I knew your reputation. Of course, I'd had your wines. I liked them. Um, but this is a wine I had with the dinner tonight. And I don't know that. I, um, oh, great. I grilled some meat. It was a really nice grilled meat and some Brussels sprouts. It was good. The thing about uh, a, a Pinot is, as you know, Dan, it's the most food friendly wine. It just kind of goes with so many things. You, you're, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong if you're at a restaurant. If everybody's ordering something different, you say Pinot. And this would be one I would always tend towards say, and, and I really liked both your Sonoma Coast and your Campbell Ranch. I thought they were incredible wines. And I would say, I think. They're right on for the money, and I think that you're actually in a good value spot. So when I looked, when I just decided to say, okay, what are these costs? <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's a bargain. I think I think the Sonoma Coast is an absolute bargain at the price point. And I think anybody's going to get a steal when they buy it. Yeah, thank you. Um, we, we did want to make the wine a little bit accessible. You know, wine's really expensive now, <laughs> but... Uh, we lease, we lease the Campbell Ranch, which makes it a little bit easier. Um, you know, sometimes like the whole Costa Brown model, we, we, um, we were buying fruit from growers. So that gets kind of expensive. Um, so right now we prefer, we don't own any vineyards yet, but we do lease. 
Um, and so that's kind of the, that, that kind of keeps our costs down a little bit, but you know, we're absolutely going for quality and, and Campbell ranch. We started this project in 2013 and, um, Campbell ranch was the first vineyard we picked up and we haven't looked back. It's so cool. I mean, literally cool too. It's, it's out by, you know, on your way to sea ranch up uh, Northern Sonoma coast. Um, so it's at about 800 feet. Um, an elevation. So you get the warmth, it kind of pops above the, the fog in the summertime a little bit, but it is cool enough. For example, we, we've got a lot of fruit in already this year, but we, we'll pick Campbell Ranch on Friday. And Ted, by the way, uh, Richie's going to buy a little Campbell Ranch fruit from us too. So he's going to make a little Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir. So yes. it'll be fun to compare and contrast in a couple of years. So, but Glenn, you really nailed it. I, I, we, you do have that cherry, a little bit of raspberry, but the word I love that you use is, is that resinous. Um, you do have that kind of dried cranberry, and then you get a little bit of pine needle in it. And that's just what Campbell Ranch is. And what we, we don't want to hide it. We use a little bit of whole cluster fermentation, which, you, which gives you a little bit of structure. But uh, we don't use a lot of oak on this. It's about 35% new French oak. So we want the oak to be the frame of the picture of the painting and not be a part of the painting, you know? So um, we just want to elevate the fruit with that kind of stuff. And the winemaking, um, this is all Dijon clones for, for those who don't know what that means. Pinot Noir has hundreds of different clones within the varietal and they give you different flavors, different body, different ripening times, this, that, the other. So Dijon are the classic, classic clones from France. Um, and so that's, uh, that's what we have in this wine. And I really appreciate your appreciation of the ex of the, uh, mm -hmm. the, uh, elegance love of it. it. Love it. And I'm, uh, as you said, most people like, they like that elegant Pinot. Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm a food guy. I'm a foodie as well. I grew up uh, in Southern California. I have family. I Growing up, I had family in Vallejo, all the way as north as Eureka. So I grew up going through the wine country before it was wine country. When I was when I was a kid, Carnaris was uh, and Petaluma were nothing but dairies and chicken farms. <laughs> but um, yeah, that I I'm a food guy all the way. And and having family that have owned ranches throughout the Central Valley, wine was kind of always on the table. Um, some of them were Italian and whatnot in the family and understanding that wine and food go they're 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 inextricably linked. You can't get them apart. So, um, and I have gone on at, at length sometimes in this, in, in our podcast about there are those wines made for the expense accounts and they're made for the guy who likes a cigar. They're not made to sit at the table and have with, with food. And these are food wines. And that to me is the highest honor you can give a wine. It's gotta be had. You got to have it with food. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think that as the American palate matures over years, um, you, you will gravitate towards nuance. Um, I think that uh, when you're, when you're first starting out drinking wine, you said the expense account wines, we know what those are, you know, we're not going to name them here, but we know what they are. Uh, but there are usually these big, bold in your face wines. Uh, which is fine because it makes a statement and that's to a, to a, not an expert, or I shouldn't say a newbie because, but to a, a non-expert, you know, anything that makes a statement, you're going to, you're probably going to like, whether it's a big, huge Zinfandel or a big oaky, buttery Chardonnay, which are, which have their place. Don't get me wrong, but, but they, they tend to be popular when they punch you in the face at no first. Doubt. 
So Dan, when, when somebody opens a bottle of your wine, what do you want them to experience that they feel? Like what's the, what's the hope that when someone cracks a bottle of your wine, what do you want them to experience? It's a great question. And it's, it's not, it's not an easy question, but I, I, I think the main thing is, you know, wine to me is more than a delicious beverage. Um, I, I want you to think. I want you to think about the the story. If you if you know about where Campbell Ranch is, you know to feel what I feel throughout the year. Whether it's you know smelling the the, the harvest this week, and you know going out there um, in the spring and, and looking at at bud break. You know, I, I it's just more than what's in the glass. So um, to to think about how, how those flavors got in the glass and why. I know that's not always easy, but that's 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 the most important for me. I mean, it has to be good first. You have to like it. But but I'd, I'd like you to understand, you know, why, what our purpose is, um, whether it's why we choose a vineyard, why we use a certain amount of oak, um, why we ferment things the way we do. And it's not always easy. It's a lot easier now, too, though, because you can just scan these, you know, URL codes. <laughs> you can pull up a, a website at the uh, at the restaurant. But um, but yeah, that's I, I wanted to make a more cerebral one. Dan, Dan, I heard you use a line that was phenomenal. You, you were talking about the wines you make and the various vineyards and we're enjoying this fabulous Campbell Ranch. But you said mission of yours, let the vineyard speak and get out of the way. I love that line. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we all say that, um, but that's why we have these single vineyard wines. So we have a couple, we have Campbell ranch and we have Sunchase vineyard and even our, or we do a little Zinfandel, which is uh, Limerick Lane. And these are seasoned, well-known vineyards that you, you have to, our, our method of choosing a vineyard to designate is it has to be unique. It has to be good. And it has to be consistently both those things. So we, we want continuity and continuity. I think when you're first starting out winemaking, you, you think you can find continuity in winemaking, but I think continuity, real continuity comes in the vineyard. So, so, you know, it's, it's a little cliche now, but good winemaking is made in the vineyard. All right, so you mentioned the in the Zen. Can we talk about your Zen? Would you like to? I would, I would love to. <laughs> okay. I'd like to hear, Glenn, have you, I mean, Glenn, Glenn is obviously clearly the uh, mm-hmm. master psalm on this podcast. I don't think I'm any of those things, but thank you. What's <laughs> the exact same word to describe this wine that Dan Castle used? So, I'm, yeah, you, you know what you're talking about very clearly, Glenn. So, tell, tell, us, tell us about, about the yeah, so I'm a I'm a Zinfandel lover as well. Um, you'll notice here. I'll show you the bottle. You'll notice this is in a burgundy bottle. That's for a reason. Um, I'd like to think of this as a Pinot Noir lover's Zinfandel. Um, so it's not a big, huge fruit bomb. It is more again elegant. Zinfandel is really transparent as well. And what I've learned since 2015, which is when I first started making Zin. It's almost as hard as Pinot. It, it is really because of the, the stuff that we get is head prone. So it's not on the cordons. It's on, they look like bushes and they grow really unevenly. They ripen unevenly, I should say. Uh, and so making a call to pick when to pick is really tough because, you know, you'll, you'll get some green clusters and you'll get not green, but not as ripe, let's just say. Um, so it's kind of, but, but uh, 
I love Zinfandel because it does have the same sensibilities as Pinot Noir, at least it can. Um, and I do love the flavors. And I love the fact that it's kind of a native, not native, but it's kind of California's grape. Um, and Limerick Lane is one of my favorite. They also have a winery there and they've been around for years, gosh, probably 40 years. Uh, and I just remember, you know, going back to like vintage is like 94, 92, 94, 95, just unbelievable stuff, uh, from Limerick Lane. Then about 10 years ago, my buddy, Jake Bilbro bought, um, the, the uh, vineyard and winery. And, um, I had just been asking him for years, Hey, can you peel off a couple of tons for me? I want to make Limerick Lane fruit. So we did. We do two tons a year. We just harvested three days ago and we make a hundred cases and half of it goes into my cellar. That's my little pet pet project. You know, I, I just love it. And then the, the other 50 cases, we just sell to our mailing list. Um, but I, I love it. Not everyone loves Zinfandel. Um, it's, it's not the easiest sell. You know, Pinot Noir, a lot, you can sell a lot of Pinot Noir, but Zinfandel, it really is a, a labor of love. Dan, you probably, you, you, I'm saying, Dan, you probably know Rob Davis. Uh, I'm from, sorry? From Jordan. So Rob, yeah. Rob just finished, what, 40 something harvests at Jordan. Yeah. The business demanded, like owners said, grow, make cab. Rob Davis forever has told me that if he had his own place, he would make Zin. He said, I did not know that. That's the winemaker's dream. He said, is to make Zen. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I mean, I I just love it. I love. I like all different kinds of styles of Zen. They uh, they can age very well. So I, I my history with Pinot goes very far back. Zinfandel not so much. Probably really appreciating Zinfandel for the last 20, 25 years. But um, I just I, it's fantastic. It's beautiful in the vineyard. Um, and I like cooler climate, uh, Zinfandel. So that, that to me means more Russian river. Um, and not, I mean, I like dry Creek, Alexander Valley, but I just prefer to, to have a cooler climate, old vine Zinfandel from Russian river. That's, that's what I really like. What'd you think, Glenn? Glenn? I'll tell you, Dan, (laughs) I'm a Zen guy too. Uh, I'm I'm, I'm native Californian. So, you know, Zen Zen's and Zen's one of those things that gets in your blood because, um, it's amazing how when you, when you get into wine and you start trying things, Zen is that crossover that it's like, it's, it's doesn't have, when you have an elegant Pinot, you have a Zen, you're like, well, that, is that a cab? And no, like, oh, no, that's a, you know, and when you're first starting out and you're very new and all this, it can be a cab. It can be, it could be a, it could be a Pinot. It can be all these different wines. It's, it's the true, like it's a chameleon of wines and it depends on the winemaker's hands and the vineyard it comes from of how it turns out. And that's what makes it special. And you're like, you said, it's a hard sell because so many people, uh, particularly Americans, only know it, well, it's not known as in anywhere else. When it was so, pink? Yeah, it's the pink thing, the Sutter home, right? <laughs> you know, we all know that. It's the it's the white Zin. No, no, no. And, and they have this, and even today, most Americans still think of Zin that way, even when they're young, because their first experience in their home, since most Americans don't drink wine, is their mom or their aunt or their sister drinking white Zin. Yeah. 
And they, when they get serious about wine, they go, well, what is this Zinfandel? That's that yeah. cheap stuff. It's like, well, well we have, it's actually, we have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have the whole, you know, 70s, 80s phenomenon of white Zin and, and quite frankly, prohibition yes. to thank for all of these old vine Zins that we have. That's right. That's why they survived was a prohibition for sacramental wines. Yep. Um, and then, uh, and then with pink wine. And if it wasn't for those, I think a lot of the, those beautiful old vine Zinfandels would have been ripped out. Yeah, and you know, even where I'm native of Southern California, Rancho Cucamonga, San Antonio, Zin vines everywhere down there. Yeah, and uh, yep. they're still out there. They're still in the. You still there's empty lots out there. You'll you'll go in the back country and there's an empty lot of Zin growing away, and somebody's making wine out of it. So I love Zins and. What I like this in is, is you're very right. It's it, this is a foggy mountain zin. This is that cool climate zin. This is not a giant extracted bomb of a zin, which I like about it. And what I appreciate is, as I said, it's that chameleon of wines. And this is a really good, this complements that pinot we just had so well. It's it's. It's kind of it's I, I it's a cheater wine, <laughs> and I say that yeah. it, it's the highest compliment. By the way, Dan, it's a cheater wine. Yeah, thank you. Not really a Pinot. It's not really. A, it's just wow, that's really good. And people always say, "Well, what do you? What would you have with with that?" I'd say, "Well, if you know a big dry extracted Pinot, well, I might have I might have a a grilled meat type of thing." I think I think I mean with Zin. I'm sorry, and Zin. I what I always think of Zin. I think pizza. Because it has everything going. It's got the savory, you know, when you're, you're looking at a piece of pizza, you've got this wonderful savory red sauce. You've got cheese. You've got, you know, these meats that are really like pepperoni and these, uh, what do you call them? I, I, I've lost my mind here, but cultured meats. And they just yeah. go great with this. It's like some people will say, oh, it's barbecue. It's, it's oh, it's got to be a steak. It's got to be grilled meat. I'm like, pizza. It's a pizza wine. I love it, and that's not a bad. I, I, I like I like that, Glenn. I think it is a good it is a good pizza wine. This is I don't want to say it's a cocktail wine in, in the sense that you were talking about it, but this wine goes really well on its own too. Absolutely, <laughs> agreed. Agreed. Hey, I, Dan, I again back to just something that I've heard you talk about. Wine and food is something that we the pairing is what we talk about all the time. You talk about wine and music being paired. So what? That's me. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't go crazy on on pairing, you know, wine and music. But I I think uh, that there's just so many similarities. You know, I think we we go back and we talk about Costa Brown and those big wines. It's like, all right, well, let's throw on some ACDC, you know, <laughs> and, and 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 go big. Um, you know, it's funny because I'm a I'm a I'm a music guy, and and for my kids, they hate it when I do this. But we we cook like ethnic food, so whatever whatever food style we're having, I I put on. Like we're having Japanese food. I'm putting on Japanese opera. <laughs> you know, and so it bugs the crap out of them. Uh, but it's, I like doing that. I, I love doing it. I think. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, K-pop. Come on, Dan. No, <laughs> not quite there. That's why it's in for you now. The, the, uh, the rush came up, right? We, we love rush. And they probably won't be playing together anymore. But, uh, you know, that rush with uh, maybe maybe the Zinfandel a little bit there. And then, you know, with Pinot Noir, I, you know, if I'm going to listen to classical music, and I mean, I, I love it with Pinot Noir. But it's more of the descriptors. It's more they have in common, whether it's low tones, high tones, mid tones. 
um, you know, they, they, it's very similar. And I play a little piano. And um, so I, I kind of get a feel for, um, you know, a balance of music is very similar to a balance in wine. And then they're also very subjective, too. So um, there's two very similar art forms, if you want to call them that. Do you have a favorite musical artist? Well, I, you know, I, I was, I said Rush. I, I was listening okay. to Rush since I was a kid and I, I never really looked back. And then I, when I was in high school, I never listened to, uh, I'm almost 50. So I, I never listened to my generation's music. I always listened to the one before. So in high school, for me, it was, you know, the Who and Zeppelin and the Beatles and Stones and stuff like that. Uh, so any, any favorite artists? Not really. I mean, you go, everyone goes in and out of, of, uh, of taste and then you come back to it. Right. And that's kind of like wine too. It's like, man, you can get on a big Chardonnay kick every once in a while. Or you get on a big Pinot kick or a Nebbiolo, whatever it is. Uh, but you always come back and, and having, being trained as a sommelier, I'm very objective. You know, I, I, I try to, I don't kind of, um, uh, spend too much time on one varietal, just like, and that's the same with music. I mean, I'm all over the place. I, I, and I love country too. I, I love country. So Dan, I, and I'm, I'm enjoying Willie, Willie Nelson while he's around. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for bringing that. So I'm glad you said <laughs> my favorite artist, Willie Nelson. I grew up on yeah. him, even though I'm from Southern Cal and yes, we had the beach boys and Dick Dale and the Deltones and, and, and my older brothers and sisters are all the stones of the Beatles and all that. So I'm the youngest of a lot of kids. And I'm older than you, Dan. So. Well, well, Willie, Willie's great because I don't know if you've I've seen, seen him, him at least seen 10 him like times. <laughs> he doesn't sing the same song the, way, the same way no, twice. And if you, if you listen on any one album, if you listen throughout his discography, either he'll have the same recording 15 times done 15 different ways. And they're all incredible. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all incredible. They really are. He's amazing. I mean, I've, I've had the I've had the opportunity many times to sit backstage and talk with him and his people. Loved it only because of my position where I was playing, and I got to do that. Uh, he was a hero. I still just I just love his music, and thank you because you brought that up. But I, I, he is timeless. Yeah, he was you know, a wine blend. What wine would he be? Oh gosh. <laughs> I don't know. Beer. That would depend. That would totally depend on where in the discography you were. Lone Star. You <laughs> could go from White Zen all the way to a heavy cab. But I love Dan what you said about um getting into wines at a time. And I've got to ask you about there's a there's there's a couple of weird wines that I've got into in my life that I absolutely love. And I don't I can't ever seem to find anybody that loves them. It's always in fall or winter. And there's two that I love. I love Cahors, the Malbec wine, the black wine, a real Malbec, not the Argentinian style, but that Cahors and Madiran. Madiran, that, that Tanat grape, that, that really thick, deep grape. And those to me are the big bruisers. Those are the ones, but gosh, with the right food at the right time of year, those are something else. Have you ever had those? Have you ever gotten into them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, it's funny because when it comes to, like uh, uh, when it comes to Bordeaux varietals, like in Malbec, I like, I, I do like Bordeaux, but I, I really do like Napa too in that style, even Washington State. I, that's one when I, I like to get away, if I want to get away from Pinot Noir, I do want a little bit of, you know, give me a ribeye with this thing. 
Yeah. You know, a, a little body, but I, I like the cohorts. I, I, I love those. Do you, do you like, uh, do you like any of um, the Loire reds? Yes. I, the Cabernet Francs from Loire. I love. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that they, they have so much violet on the nose and they're so perfumed and they're so, they're so light. They're not even, they don't have the, they don't have the, the, um, they don't have the body of the Southern uh, Cabernet Francs. But they have yeah. they have that elegance. They're almost like a Pinot Noir, but I don't know how to explain it exactly. I, I yeah, I could I tend to like chill those down a little bit too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you're out you're out in New York, right? Well, right now I am. Normally, I'm, I think I, that you have better access to those types of wines than we do in Sonoma County. It's hard to find a lot of imports around here. Well, I'm I'm in an area that has a lot of imports. Uh, I'm in Ithaca. I'm near Ithaca right now, and there's a couple. Yeah, of good and, and Tanat uh, Tanat's pretty pretty hot. People people are liking Tanat. They are getting back into it, but uh, it, the, the the really good Madirans you can still find. And for you guys, um, you guys, the rest of the crew, a good cassoulet, right? It's dark. It's deep. It's winter. You want a cassoulet? You want that really good. Oh God, the beans! I'm going to make a lot of cassoulet this winter because I bought two pigs at the Sonoma County 4-H <laughs> auction. I love it. I love it. So well, I'm, I'm, I'm loaded up with pigs, so I'm going to make a whole bunch. And I, hey, but I just need some confit. Some hey, Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up. I'm coming up to Sonoma. I'll bring some duck confit, and we're going to we're going to put a lot of duck fat on top of that thing. Oh, I'm going to Nick Gallioni, who just He's got about ten ducks sitting in the back of his truck. So I think we can. Yeah, we can. We'll be there. There you go. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it wild duck? I was. I didn't ask. Yeah. I mean, why? I, I assume it, if you're duck hunting, it's wild duck, right? I don't really know about that. Yes. It's, yeah. You so Dan, not everyone yeah. likes wild duck. Yes, we, absolutely. We reference you. Dan, we've referenced you. You've been good friends with Richard Aurelia. Um, how extraordinary is it to have a guy step out of sports and do what he and Dave Roberts have done with Red Stitch? And how many other athletes have you come across the sports connection that have tried to do that have tried the wine business? A lot, a lot. Uh, I know Danica Patrick mm-hmm. pretty well. Um, she's over in Napa. Um, you have, you know, Tom Seaver, who's no longer around, but, um, gosh, I, I could go on and on and on. Um, but it, it's a lot, but I'll tell you the difference. Um, I've, I've done some blending trials with Dave and Richie and their other partner, John Mysick, and they're involved. They're really involved. They, they put their, they put their touch on, on these wines. So they're not just slapping a, 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 a professional athlete's name on it. I'm not saying that everyone else does it. I just don't, I don't know, but I do know with red stitch and, and the wines are phenomenal. And, you know, an interesting story. I'm not sure if he told the story when, when you, uh, when you had him on the podcast, but the, the way we met was he was, uh, it was 09 or 08. He was like, what it was, whatever his last year was Dave's last year too, I think. But, um, we were at a charity auction and, and I see I'm a Giants fan and, and I see, oh man, there's Richard really and Dave Roberts. How cool is this? They're coming up to try my wines. Well, Richie told me later, they're like, Hey, that's Dan Costa from Costa Brown Winery. <laughs> let's, let's go try the, go try the wine. So it's kind of a, a mutually, uh, a mutual, um, respect and a little bit of, I, I don't get starstruck, but it was just nice that, you know, uh, sports and wine are, they, they seem to go hand in hand a lot more nowadays, but it's a lot of baseball players, a lot of baseball players. Well, it's because Dan, that's because they have the money <laughs> and the time. 
<laughs> when I was playing ball, um, I, there was a few of us. There was myself and Chris Dolman and, and uh, Chris Whitman and a few others. But, they, you know, we, we didn't make the money the baseball players did. We had to actually, like, get our hands dirty in order to get into wine. We couldn't just simply go out to a restaurant. I had to go to, I had to, go to Napa and work in a winery and do it the right because yeah, this is what I was going to get it done. Well, they, the, the, the David. What's that? This is a story of perseverance for Glenn Parker that he. <laughs> well, Richie, Richie does a lot of uh, of the management of Red Stitch. I think you know Dave is a little busy. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, I, Dan. One thing I've learned. Uh, and I became, I had the honor to become good friends with Tom Seaver. And I went to his uh, vineyard several times and he was the word you use all the time, hands-on. I mean, he didn't make wine. He hired people to make the wine. He was in the fields every day, every single day. And it was an incredible lesson for me to see someone who would just, who dove in literally head first and would go out and tie vines and water everything and drove every every inch of his vineyards every day it was an astonishing thing to see it's a cool lifestyle and you know it and it it does make you understand your own product a, a little bit more if you if you do get out there and you do you don't have to be the winemaker but it does help to to get really close especially um well especially if you are not the winemaker and you you weren't trained but you know to to get a feel of the 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 vintage, especially um, every year, you got to you got to be outside, you know. So that's how we that's how we do things around here. We we kind of categorize a year according to how good the Pinot Noir came out. And that's just it's nice. It kind of helps you remember certain signposts uh, around the year. You know, Dan, I'm going to say this as a lifelong surfer. I, I find winemakers a lot like surfers in this, and that you remember the conditions that led up to the harvest. So the conditions of a year lead up to your break. You know, hey, it's a really good, you know, if you have a really good south swell, it's because the hurricane's down south. You have a really good winter swell, it's because of those winter storms. And you can kind of remember all those things, and they stick in your mind each year. Oh, remember the winter of, of 07. Oh, you know, you just go off on it because it, it meant so much to you. It sounds like you guys kind of have the same thing going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just, I want a few more vintages like the Giants are having this year. Just when <laughs> you don't know that they're going to do this and then it just, wow. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Dan, we, we should, before we finish here, let's, um, you, when in fact I first met you and you, this had just happened one of the one of the prolific fires that sadly went through Santa Rosa you lost a house and so many others who work in, in the wine business lost yeah. homes and it's a great credit to you talk about what you've done Emerald so many other people to work to help all of those yourself included that lost homes in those fires we did um yeah i lost my home in 2017 so that was like the first that was the tubs fire that was came over from napa they started it in napa and it came over <laughs> to us uh, but yeah i said you're right five thousand homes lost in that fire that was, a, that was a big deal um the reason i met alden and emerald was pretty much through philanthropy i would i would go to their um uh to their foundations events in new orleans and then eventually i become a board member i'm, I'm on their board now 
Um, so we, I know a little bit about philanthropy and, 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 you know, we have our Sonoma County wine auction coming up on, on Saturday and, and I'm co-chair of that this year. Um, but we, we are directing a lot towards fire relief nowadays. Alden Alley, we, uh, part of our release a couple years ago, um, we gave a portion to fire relief in Sonoma County. So we released our wine. We were able to raise almost $50,000 just from, you know, that part of our, our fundraising. Um, I just got married in June. Um, so we, you know, we do in lieu of gifts, we really would appreciate, uh, fire relief. Uh, and, and everyone was really generous with that. So this year I'm going to give a little up to, uh, um, the Tahoe region. I have a house up there and it got really close and it was really scary with, uh, with the, uh, with this Caldor fire. So, um, I hope that we don't have to donate so much to firefighting in the years to come because, you know, it is, it's needed, but it's just, it's hard to catch a break uh, in California right now. So I think it's really important, but typically before that, before the fire was a big issue, um, we, a lot of children's charities, uh, the Legacy Foundation um, is a, a, uh, a benefactor for um, Gulf Coast charities mainly. Um, down in New Orleans, Panhandle of Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, um, but they have been extremely supportive of uh, of fire uh, relief efforts here, and it goes both ways. So this coming week, um, we'll be able to write the Legacy Foundation a check for hurricane relief. So it just it's it's a great relationship, and and the philanthropic the philanthropic part of winemaking, people are really generous. It's really fantastic. Well, I think uh, we, we're just so grateful, Dan, you joined us. We've enjoyed this wine. I'm going to order a pizza now. That's what you did to me. When, you know what I'm going to go. I've, right. I've got a four-year-old outside who I hope you haven't been hearing at my door. Uh, I'm going to go hand this to him and, and have him dip his finger in and see what he tastes. And then I'm going to say goodnight. And hopefully it's going to go better than most nights at that time. So, Dan, thank you for that parenting tip. I don't know why. I don't know why I've been holding out on giving my four-year-old wine. <laughs> That's right. Good job. <laughs> and and Dan, you know why? So you know why Ash time. and I we have Glenn as our Parker. You know that, <laughs> Glenn. Fantastic. I, I love it when people appreciate what we're trying to do. Uh, uh, I think you're. I don't think and, you're and trying anymore, Especially in the Dan. detail that you said it. You're, it's awesome. Thank you I don't very think much, you're, guys. I don't think you're trying, Dan. Thank you so much. Loved it, and thank you so much for coming on with us. Like. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Cheers, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining us this week on Outside the Vines. Remember to check out our YouTube channel to get more out of your experience with the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back on our next episode soon. This has been a presentation of Outside the Vines. For the love of wine and the thirst for sports. Sports.